Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming out to hear God's word be enjoyed, expounded, explained together. Now, I'm excited to actually open the book of 1 Peter uh, with you uh, over the next few months, it looks like, uh, because it's one a month, right? Uh, but I'm very excited about that. Um, Particularly because the more I have studied and read the book of 1 Peter, the more I just come away thinking, this is for right now. This is for our church. This is for your lives and mine. Uh, so I hope that you'll be as excited um, as I am about 1 Peter. But as we begin to think about uh, some themes in 1 Peter, think about this with me. What's it like to live in a different country to your home country? How many of you have ever lived in another country? That's not your home country. Oh, some of you. Okay, more, more than I expected. I guess you have experienced a range of emotions uh, when you were living in a different country. But what if you lived in a country where your nationality was not appreciated very much? I don't know if that was your experience. But think, for example, if you are a German national living in Britain right after uh, World War II, how much hate would you get? I wonder, how much distrust? What if you were a European migrant working in the UK, but your neighbor was someone who said loudly, those blooming foreigners coming in and taking our jobs? It, uh, funnily enough, it was in East Anglia, where um, a passerby, well, on a bike, uh, first shouted to me, go back to your country. It's never happened again. I thought it was very amusing because it was a teenager and I'm a youth worker, so. Um, but. Interestingly, Christians face similar problems to migrants. You know, immigrants uh, coming into a, a new culture, they come with their own set of challenges. And I asked a Brazilian friend of mine who lived uh, in the UK, just what was the easiest and what was the hardest thing for you to adapt to in this culture? Unsurprisingly to me, she said, I found it really hard to just be away from my family. And I didn't think that I made as uh, many friends as I imagined, because relating to people in this culture is different to relating to people in Brazil, not least because we are very touchy uh, and feel huggy in Brazil, and not so much in this country, though people are a bit more physically affectionate in the north. And the easiest, the easiest, sorry, that I meant to say, I just, I just meant, you know what I meant, okay. But there we go. Um, but as we journey through the letter uh, uh, from the Apostle Peter, we're going to be faced with this tension. On the one hand, we want to say, we're not from this world. If you're a Christian, this world isn't your home. We're exiles, uh, which is another word um, for strangers that you have in your passage. But on the other hand, we want to say, but God chose his people to be in the world for a purpose. So we've got this tension in the world not of it. If you're a part of God's people tonight, knowing who you are, according to 1 Peter, is going to be really, really important for you to understand how to live in the world. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're not yet part of God's people, you get a little, a little glimpse of the privilege of being a child of God this evening. But I told you that uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. Who is this Peter? Uh, you might not know. Uh, he's the Apostle Peter. And the criteria for that, if you want to read at your leisure in Acts chapter 1, 
is someone who was an eyewitness, who was there when Jesus was baptized, who was there all throughout Jesus' ministry and witnessed the risen Jesus and saw him ascend. That's what we're talking about, Peter. This same Peter, who went through a bit of a rough journey, if you know. He left everything to follow Jesus. You remember Mark chapter 10? Uh, he pr promised Jesus that he would stay by his side no matter what happened. And that was followed by him disowning Jesus, betraying him, and um, being forgiven and restored, being transformed into a man who was like that, and now, at the time of writing this book, was willing to face persecution uh, for the Jesus that he was afraid to associate himself with before. Because now he writes as a battle-scarred gospel sufferer who knows what it's like to meet a hostile world as a Christian uh, because this world would want to silence him when he says, Jesus is alive, or when he says, Jesus is Lord. What an incredible transformation. Probably someone who met his end in the 60s, in the first century, um, at the hands of Emperor Nero, finishing the race well. But who is he writing to? If you glance at verse 1 again, these strangers, exiles, scattered, probably people who were not Jews, who were Gentiles, although there's a little bit of debate, uh, but who became Christians and were now finding it a little bit difficult, living as Christians in a culture that was pagan, that had different habits, different life goals to Christians. Kind of like my friend in Brazil found it difficult to adapt to a different culture, except this time it's about not just whether people are huggy or not, but moral choices that Christians were being tempted to make that didn't please God. Where is Peter writing from? That's why we read actually chapter 5, if you noticed. Um, he's saying, she who is in Babylon uh, sends her greetings, probably a little reference to Rome. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, because when Peter is using words like um, strangers, exiles, Babylon, he's placing God's people in a particular place in God's timeline. So let's have a little refresher. Uh, this might not be new to many of you, but you remember that God's people in the Old Testament had a covenant with God, much better than a contract. Um, this loving agreement with God involved blessings for obeying God and walking with him, because that's what we were made to do, and curses, or things that were punishments for disobeying him, because that's not how we were made to live. So God's people had been living in a place where they were free to worship him, but they stopped doing that. Um, they continuously disobeyed God, and that led to them being um, kicked out of the land where they could freely worship and enjoy God. Um, and that was the exile. You might remember uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, which if you can spell his name, I will give you a 10 out of 10, because I had to Google this when I was writing it. Uh, but he was uh, the Babylonian king who took God's people away. And as exiles, in that time of being away, they were reminded of the God they should have loved. And when they wanted to obey him, now they needed to learn to obey God in a land where everyone else around them didn't want them to. They didn't love God and believe that he was king. In other words, they were exiles living in a place where it was just really hard to worship God because no one wanted them to. And from that time on, Babylon becomes this kind of symbol, this sign 
um, of a, a foreign land, not just geographically, but spiritually, where it's just a hard place, where God is not king, and it's hard to be a Christian there. What does this have to do with 1 Peter, though? Hopefully, you can put two and two together already, and you can see that if Peter is writing to Christians who are being persecuted simply because they are Christians and the culture around them doesn't like them, then you can see that they are also exiles in that sense. And as it was with first century Christians, so it is with you and me, if you're a Christian uh, today. Because in our culture, isn't it true? It's a little bit tricky. There are things like safe spaces, uh, rooms in universities, for example, where uh, if you're a Christian, you're not allowed to go there and talk about your offensive beliefs. Um, there's a whole lot of political correctness. Um, if you are a Christian speaker, you may be uninvited because of what you believe. Uh, if you are going to school and you are a Christian, there might be some uh, views of sex and sexuality that will be forced upon you, that you cannot disagree. So it's not so safe for Christians to express what they believe um, the good news is all about at work or at school. As a matter of fact, for the first time in a good many years, you might be called dangerous if you are a Christian. Dangerous if your bakery won't put unchristian words on a cake. Dangerous if your B&B won't let someone stay if you disagree with certain sexual practices. You are dangerous if you want to put out there on social media words like Jesus is Lord. And that's just the West. Um, what of our persecuted brothers around the world who actually suffer violence for their faith? How do we live in a world like this? Sounds really hard. By being reminded, I think Peter is going to tell us, of who we are. That's going to help us to know how to live as Christians. So here are my headings for you, if you are a note taker. Know who you are. Two things. You're chosen, if you are a Christian, chosen to live obediently. And you are exiles who live longingly. You long for your true home. So know who you are, chosen to live obediently. Now, being chosen can be a positive or a negative experience. Uh, you may have experienced this, like, for example, the people in my school found when they looked at me and they said, look at how tall he is. He will be good at basketball. Pick him. Sadly, they discovered that the best I could do was to injure the other players. Although that might have been advantageous. I don't know. But praise God that when he chooses... It isn't because of anything we can offer him, as we've just been singing. Chosen is only one of many beautiful pictures that God uses to describe his people. Peter carries many of these Old Testament pictures into the New. So you look at chapter 2, verse 9, for example. There are loads of them there. God's people are called a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, treasured possession, and all of these find their root in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And we struggle, don't we, sometimes, with the doctrine, the teaching of election, of God choosing some people to come to know him. Um, it's funny, actually, how this permeates even the tiniest aspects of life. Uh, this isn't as much related, but we've decided to uh, adopt a cat, and because we're talking about election, I'm going to call our new cat um, Calvin, uh, from John Calvin. And when I asked my landlord 
okay, this church, to write a little letter. They said, um, have you got a name? I said, yes, Calvin. They said, has it been predestined? I said, it has been. Um, but we can talk about that. There's a little bit of a tension, though, here, isn't there? Why only some chosen? Not all. One Peter isn't going to answer that question tonight. But we affirm what the scriptures say when they say that some people God chooses. There are other parts of the Bible that will talk about how people also need to make a choice to follow Jesus. But because one Peter isn't touching on that, I won't do that tonight. If you do have questions, you can ask Andy um, after the service. He'll be more than happy. But here's what I think you need to know. Why is Peter starting his letter like this? Why does he think that's something people need to know? I think it's because this doctrine of election, when understood well, is actually hugely comforting. That's why Peter mentions it here. This loving God who has no obligation to any of his rebellious creatures chooses, marvelous to our eyes, to rescue some of them so that they can enjoy his love. Now imagine, uh, for example, someone who uh, in their workplace chose to hire a person just to fulfill a diversity quota. I'm not saying that's what happened at Walton, with me. But wouldn't they be rightly furious if they discovered that that's the only reason why they were hired? I think so. But what if someone has been hired, not because of anything they can offer, because they've got no skills, not because of um, anything that they can do to repay. That kind of choosing is out of sheer goodness and a desire to help that person who is in need. This kind of choosing is what we're talking about when we talk about God. And it brings hope and gratitude to the chosen heart, doesn't it? It brings comfort when everything seems to be going wrong. And for these Christians in uh, modern-day Turkey, it brought them comfort. Because wouldn't you feel diminished if in your best efforts to please God and live for him, stuff just went wrong all the time and people wanted to beat you up? I would feel discouraged. What if all you wanted to do was to work, follow your work rules by the book and not fudge numbers and you got fired for it? What if all you wanted to do was to do what was right and expected of you at school, but you got laughed at and excluded from a friendship group? What if because you decided to no longer have at the top of your priority list money, sex, career, reputation, and as a result, your family disowned you or kicked you out? What if government persecuted you because you decided to become a Christian? Before um, we had thought about these things, maybe we would have thought the situation for these Christians in 1 Peter isn't so familiar. But actually, it's sounding a lot more familiar now, isn't it? And it's now, at these times and before uh, then, that we need to think about it, what it means to be chosen by God. Because how did I feel um, when people chose me for my uh, perceived talents, my height, my swiftness, my dexterity? I felt pretty rubbish because that would have meant I needed to keep being impressive to the people who chose me. Fulfilling the expectations of other people can be really crushing, can't it? For example, uh, in Japan, you may know that some young man 
have been called hikikomori. And that means the one who withdraws or stays indoors. Because they shut themselves in because they can't fulfill the expectations, the academic expectations of the culture around them. So they give up and they shut themselves in their rooms for years. How freeing then for such a person to know that they have a place in God's family, not because of anything they could do, and therefore they can't be kicked out for anything that they did do. Jesus himself is a brilliant example of this because all throughout his life, he knew his mission, he knew his role, he knew he was chosen. John 10, 10, I've come so that you may have life. And all throughout his mission, he knew he was chosen by God and what he had to do was to bring God glory. So throughout every tear, throughout every rejection, every blood drop, he knew that he was part of God's plan that he had chosen for him. Jesus constantly reminded himself of this that he was chosen, and Peter says, so must we. But here's what that doesn't mean, just in case there's any confusion. Being chosen by God doesn't mean that we were somehow so special that God looked at us as if you were window shopping, and he said, I must have them. My life will not be the same until I buy Tiago back with Jesus' blood. Because let me read Deuteronomy chapter 7 to you. It's quite humbling. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on the face of the earth, just like he chose every Christian. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous. There was nothing special about you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. We were not valuable or precious if you're a Christian here today in the sense that God said, I must buy them. But the emphasis is always on his extraordinary, gracious, forgiving love. Doesn't that warm your heart? That we don't have to perpetually try and say, God, let me give you another reason today why you need to keep me in your family. No, you don't have to be stressing out like that. But here's what it does mean, being chosen. Verse 2. Those, don't you love these three truths in there? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. All three persons, if you are a Christian here, were involved in your planning, your choosing of your membership in God's family. Everyone in this church who is a Christian. The Father chooses, the Son sheds his blood, and the Holy Spirit lives within Christians applying the benefits of Jesus' death. Being chosen means I can't look at myself in the mirror and say, you're an accident. I can't say that because God had planned from my very birth and before that I would be a part of his family. Isn't that comforting for a number of reasons? Comforting when uh, sometimes things, things in life seem to be going wrong, even though you are trying to follow Jesus. But on the flip side... If you are not a Christian, what do you tell yourself when you feel insignificant? What do you tell yourself when life just seems to be a bunch of blind forces at work? Why do we all long for something bigger, a better plan than just being an accident? Because here's the thing, if you are not a Christian and you say my significance doesn't lie in being chosen by God and loved by him, but in my work, 
then is your life meaningless if you can't work anymore? If you say that the meaning of my life is not in being chosen, but in my academic success, well, what when you stop succeeding? What then? If you say that it's in relationships or a friendship, what happens when either you or they get bored of you? Do you say that the only really satisfying truth is in being chosen by God in, in, in the gospel? And I am chosen to be in Christ's family no matter what happens, and I can remind myself of that. So as we summarize that first point there, it might look like the person next to you is just an ordinary human being, but if they are a Christian, they are chosen to live obediently to their God. But I've also said, know who you are, not only chosen to live obediently, but exiles who live longingly. Now, I've told you before, uh, if you've met me for a while, that people often ask me um, why I don't live in Brazil anymore. Um, and I think that people find it highly amusing that the stereotypes about a Brazilian person don't really seem to apply to me. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and, uh, and I said, I was doing an assembly in a school, and I said, um, unfortunately, I'm exiled in this country because of my lack of uh, football ability. You know, if you, basically, if people think you're Brazilian and you can't play football, I'm sorry. You know, I also am incapable of complex hip movements. Uh, I therefore cannot samba or dance, and so I need to live uh, in, in the UK or another country. But there are many reasons, aren't there, why people don't live in their home country. But there certainly are many reasons why people are exiled, often political reasons. And when I think about people who can't live in their country, it just my heart aches a little bit for them because it's dreadful, isn't it? And it's a, when you think about people who, because of a, a crime or politics, can't live in their home country, that's just an inkling of what happened to the ancient people of God. Um, and in the same way, for Christians, Peter is saying, you're an exile. You don't live in a world that you can call home. You're surrounded by people who don't call God their king and would make fun of you if you did. But imagine living in a different country. You speak a different language, and as you speak a different language, you don't consegue entender what as other people are talking Imagine communicating like that if you can't understand what someone else is saying. If you're a Christian, does it feel like that sometimes? You're trying to just explain to people what you believe and they're looking at you like you just looked at me. What are you saying? What Jesus, King, resurrection, eternal life, isn't this fairy tales? They don't get it. And because if you're a Christian, you're in exile, you need to be reminded that there is a tension between where we want to be with God, new heavens, new earth, and where we are now, a place that doesn't love God in, in its fullness, and we're surrounded by people who don't either. So don't be surprised if you're a young person. When, because you don't have the same life goals as your friends, don't be surprised that they don't understand you. They just don't get you. Because if you're faithfully living for more than your grades, than money, and career, reputation, and so on, if you're living for an eternal reality that your mates know nothing about, then why should we be shocked when they judge you for 
not swearing or not having sex before marriage or throwing your money away because you give. Adults, is it any wonder if you're not gonna, that you're not going to make as much money as other people if you are an exile, living um, with a different goal, a different destination and finish line? Single people, should you be surprised when people don't get it when you say, I don't have to be sexually active to feel complete because I'm united with Christ. He satisfies me. He completes me. Wives, when you submit to your husbands as to Christ, the world just won't understand it. Husbands, when you seem like you're under the thumb because you are aiming to serve your wife as Christ loved the church, the world won't understand it. Walton Church, when your friends and neighbors hear what you believe and they find something about the gospel offensive, that's okay. Don't let that discourage you. I'll try to do the same. Let's pray for them together. Don't we feel like this? Feel like exiles. Um, every, every brokenness, every piece of discontent in this life points to that truth, that we're exiles. Do you remember C.S. Lewis, uh, the famous Christian author? He has a, 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 an article called The Weight of Glory, and in it, he talks about pretty much being an exile, not finding this world your home. Um, he talks about a far-off country. And we're constantly faced in life with this desire for something that we haven't experienced, but that we long to have. He says, every time we write poetry or think of beauty or relish a good memory from the past, we are reminded of something we long for, but never had. Because we've had a little taster of our real home with Jesus, we just can't wait to walk alongside him in the new heavens and new earth. That's why Lewis says this. These desires are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. You've had a little taster of what it's like to be with Jesus in this life. And you would love to see the new world. That's what we were singing about as well. Do you feel that longing for a better country? Because if you're not yet a Christian, all you might feel is, gosh, I wish there was more to life than this. If you feel that, that's a little something pointing you to the fact that there is. And that's why you need to know Jesus. Because as Augustine said, he said this about God, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until we find rest in you. But because we believe that we're exiles as Christians, that's also why um, I was thinking we can hold things in this world loosely, can't we? One of the most humbling moments, I think, in my experience as a Christian was when I met a lady who was, um, so she was an, a pensioner um, in my previous church, and as such, I would imagine, didn't have loads of money pouring into her bank account every month. But at that time, um, I needed to get a visa. Uh, we needed to leave the UK in order to get uh, this visa done. Uh, and I didn't have money even for the flight uh, back to Brazil for Megan and I. This lady came up to me and she said, can I give you 800 pounds to cover your flight? and some of your visa. And I was just thinking, 
Of course not. You probably don't even have that money. You know, and she said, no, you don't worry. I do have it. It's mine to do what I will with it. I will do whatever I will with it. I can hold it loosely because it's not just about living in this life. I did consult others, by the way, uh, before doing that. But it's not just about money living um, as an exile longingly, is it? How do we respond when things break, when things disappoint us? Do we just think, my life is now shattered because I had this problem with my house or I had a, a, a dent in my car or whatever? Or do we hold things loosely knowing my existence is about more than just this world, this life right now? It should change the way that we live. So as we bring things to a close, how does being chosen to live obediently motivate you excite you? How does being an exile who lives longingly um, warm your heart, reminding you that when things go wrong, it's okay. This isn't everything. This isn't the last chapter in the page of God's book of your existence. There is more to today. And even in today, God warms your heart, reminding you that there is um, a little sample right now of what we will experience in eternity.